Hello and welcome to Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be kicking off a series on the First World War, also called the Great War, or the War to End All Wars. So, World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, and really changed the world in a number of ways. So, one of the ways that the world was uh, altered as a result of the war was that four empires actually collapsed uh, by the time the dust had settled. So by the end of the war, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire, so Turkey, had all collapsed. And their lands were carved into independent nations or handed over to the Allies. Another way that the world was changed was uh, you saw an increased identity for the dominions of the British Commonwealth. Nations like Australia and Canada... Uh, fought hard, fought well during the war, and some of the horrible battles that they were involved in kind of forged a new national identity for these people. Uh, A number of British subjects gained increased national pride and identity through the fighting of World War I. And I already mentioned Canada and Australia, but there was also New Zealand, South Africa, India, many key battles became a part of their their national story, their, their national mythology. So for the Canadians, uh, something like Vimy Ridge, or for the Australians, something like Gallipoli. Another rippling effect of the Great War was that it really laid the foundations, it really put down the fuel for World War II. So the peace conditions of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, which ended the war, it left so many Germans bitter and angry, Uh, that they later embraced the fascist policies uh, of Adolf Hitler. I mean, of course, this was exacerbated by political division and weakness in the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic was basically the Germany between the two world wars. Uh, And, of course, the Great Depression didn't help things at all. But uh, it kind of helps you to see why Germans would turn to Hitler in the uh, 30s. And there were many uh, historians that said that the Treaty of Versailles was not really a peace treaty. It was more like a 20-year ceasefire. But anyway, moving right along, the the last effect of the war that I really wanted to talk about briefly was um, it led to the rise of the United States as a great power, uh, and it led to the birth of the Soviet Union. So first, the United States dramatically increased its international political and economic standing as a result of the war. And at the same time, they suffered relatively few casualties. See, up until this point, the United States was still expanding in the West. They were fighting wars on the frontier. In many ways, they had not yet emerged as a global power, really, on the level of the British Empire. Uh, During the war, the United States actually went from a debtor nation to a creditor nation because of the vast sums of money that they lent to the Allies. Their manufacturing was really kicked up into high gear because they were supplying so much uh, weapons, ammunition, supplies. In military history, these things, they're often referred to as materiel to the Allies. 
and they really emerged from the war uh, in, in, a, in a good position, so to speak. The Russian Empire really had a hard time during the war, and um, for reasons that I'll get into later, in 1917 the government collapsed, and the people had had enough of the Tsar. And there was a revolution by a group of people called the Bolsheviks, and they took power and pretty much created what we call now the Soviet Union, which is huge. So anyway, I just wanted to touch on these two things briefly, is that in World War I, you see a battering, a weathering of the old world order where the world was dominated by Europe, and you see the rise of the United States and the birth of the Soviet Union. I would like to say that Europe still really was powerful and dominant in world affairs into the 20s and 30s and 40s. But this trend, this power shift, this weathering, battering of Europe through warfare and this emergence of the United States and the Soviet Union did start after the First World War. It really did reach its pinnacle after the Second World War, where Europe had to rebuild itself and you saw the beginning of the Cold War, which would dominate the world for the next several decades. During this series, I'm going to try to outline the key people, places, and events of the Great War, and I'm going to try to not get bogged down in the minutiae, the, the tiny little details of every battle. Uh, you know, so there's not going to be a lot of, at this battle, this happened at this time, and this division ran into this division, and they fought for this objective, and they took this many casualties. I'm, I'm going to try to stay away from that and instead give you an impression of the forces behind the war, sprinkled with interesting details so that you you really kind of understand the patterns and trends of the war. And, I, and I'm going to try to illustrate these things at the same time while trying to explain kind of why they're important, why they were important at the time, and why they may still be important today. I really do believe that the First World War, even today, casts a very long shadow. So let's get started with an account of the event that really started the war. That is to say, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. So Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In 1914, there were really seven great powers in Europe. Some of them were ascending, some of them were stable, and some of them were declining. And it really helps if uh, you could pull up a map of Europe in 1914 uh, to, to really understand kind of what I'm talking about. Obviously, don't do this if you're driving. But uh, just briefly, the, the seven great powers of Europe in 1914 were in the West, you had the United Kingdom and France, and then you had Germany and Italy and Austro-Hungarian Empire in the center. And in the East, you had the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. So in this time period, the long, powerful, established powers were the United Kingdom and France. They had a long tradition of 
stability and power, and they had these big global empires. Italy had recently united and was kind of new onto the scene. Um, Germany was also new onto the scene, and they were very ambitious, and their economy had just grown by leaps and bounds over the previous decades. In the East, the Russian Empire was struggling a little bit. There had been civil unrest, uh, you know, a decade earlier. They had fought a, a disastrous war with Japan that they lost. The Ottoman Empire was in even worse shape. I mean, there was a time in Europe where Europeans all over the continent were terrified of the Turks. But by 1914, they had lost a lot of territory, uh, especially in North Africa. They had fought a few Balkan wars in 1912, 1913, where they had lost a lot of territory in that region. But they still had Anatolia. So when we talk about Anatolia, that basically just refers to the region that we now call Turkey. And they still controlled huge portions of the Middle East. So the countries now uh, that we call Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia, places like that. If it helps to categorize things in your mind, for what I mentioned earlier, so again, picture the seven great powers and maybe three categories, ascending, stable, and declining. I would say definitely ascending would be Germany and Italy, whereas uh, stable would be the United Kingdom, France, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, whereas struggling or declining, I would say the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. An interesting result of the war is that there were three empires, three or four empires actually, that fought in the east. And as a result of that fighting in the east, so Russia fighting against Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, all four of those empires that were just tangling and fighting each other in the east as a result of the war by 1918, by 1919, they had all collapsed. But enough about that. Let's talk about Archduke Franz Ferdinand. He arrived in Sarajevo, and on June 28, 1914, the plan was for him and his wife and a bunch of other officials to be part of a motorcade that would leave the train station uh, on its way to the town hall of Sarajevo, where he would uh, give a speech. I mean, officially, he was in town to observe maneuvers of the Austro-Hungarian army. What the Archduke did not know was that for a long time now, a secret terrorist organization made up of Serbs called the Black Hand had been planning to assassinate him on this very day. The Black Hand on June 28th had assembled a team of six assassins that were going to hide in the crowd along the route of the motorcade. Each one of them had a pistol and a poison pill. So the motorcade left the train station at 10 a.m. and the first assassin sees the motorcade approaching. But there just wasn't an opportunity. He failed to act. A few minutes later, the second assassin sees his chance but failed to act. A few minutes later, 
this is maybe 10, 15 minutes into the motorcade, a man named Nedelko Kabrinovich was the third assassin and he made his move. He threw a bomb at the Archduke's car, but it actually bounced off the car and fell into the road behind him and detonated uh, near one of the other cars of the motorcade. It actually injured a bunch of people. So at this point, the Archduke's car speeds away uh, to safety. And the remaining assassins were cursing their luck. They're like, oh man, this whole plan is messed up, including a young man called Gavrilo Princip. In fact, he was discouraged. Uh, he was kind of frustrated with how the assassination attempt had failed. So he decides to go to a local uh, deli to get a sandwich and a, and a coffee and kind of just blow off some steam. One last thing about the man who threw the bomb, Kabrinovich. After he threw the bomb, there was chaos in the crowd. He was quickly identified uh, as, as a would-be assassin, and he struggled with people. He broke free. Then there was like a little canal river that ran along the road, and he jumped into it, hoping to make his escape in the river. What he didn't know was that it was only 12, 13 inches deep at the time, so... It really didn't help him at all. And as he's being overtaken by the Archduke's uh, security detail, he pops his poison pill in his mouth to try to commit suicide. Unfortunately, the pill was expired, and the result was that he just ended up vomiting all over the guys that were trying to arrest him. So picture this guy who throws this bomb, yells something like, you know, death to the Archduke or something, then tries to flee in the river, it really goes up to like his ankle, and then pops a pill, struggling with the guards, and starts throwing up all over them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if any of you out there play Dungeons & Dragons, but in that kind of circumstance, you could say he rolled a one. At this point, the Archduke continues speeding towards the town hall where he gives his speech that, that he, had been plan he had been planning to give. Uh, he did open the speech, you know, chastising the mayor of Sarajevo saying, hey, I, I come here and your people greet me with bombs. But anyway, he gave his speech and then uh, he wanted to do a gentlemanly thing. He said, I want to go to the hospital to visit the people that were wounded by that bomb that exploded, that bomb that bounced off my car and uh, injured a bunch of people behind me. So let's do that. Let's take the motorcade. We're gonna hop back in the car, uh, him and his wife, Sophie, let's go. They decide to go, at, at this point, nobody knows the route. Okay, so the planned motorcade route now is finished. Nobody knows where he's going. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what happens next in my opinion, is one of the greatest historical coincidences of the past hundred years, the past thousand years, if not of all time, because of the ramifications of what happened as a result of this event. His motorcade is going down the road. Take me to the hospital. His driver happens to make a wrong turn. The, the cars go right on a street when they were supposed to go straight. There's a little deli right at the corner of these two streets. The driver realizes his mistake. 
after the officials are yelling at him and he stops the car and attempts to reverse. Uh, cars back then were very primitive, so by doing this, the car stalls. The officials get out and they, they go and they start pushing the car into reverse so that they can continue on their original route. The car had stopped right in front of the deli where Gavrilo Princip was enjoying his coffee and sandwich. He cannot believe his luck. He was he was considering himself a failure. The whole operation is a failure. He looks up from his sandwich and who is there right in front of him in a stalled car but the Archduke and his wife. Without hesitating, he stands up, takes one, two, three steps right up to the footboards of the car and shoots both of them. He shot the Archduke and he shot his wife. Originally, the official next to the Archduke uh, had thought that the shot had missed until he saw the Archduke start spitting up blood on his tunic. And he said, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, the, they initially thought that Sophie had fainted because of the, you know, the, the excitement, the terror of the event. But no, she was actually shot as well. When Ferdinand saw that his wife was shot, he screamed out, Sophie, don't die, stay alive for the children. And the official who was next to the Archduke kept asking him if he was okay. And according to people at the time, the Archduke just kept saying the same thing seven or eight times, more and more faintly until he slumped over and died. He kept saying, it is nothing. It is nothing, it is nothing, it is nothing. At this point, Gavrilo Princip is tackled and disarmed, and he's apprehended by the security forces. The Archduke had been hit in the neck. It actually hit him right in the jugular vein, which is actually, which is one of the reasons why he died so quickly. And the second shot on Sophie, his wife, uh, she had been hit in the abdomen. Princip had tried to shoot himself, but was uh, he, he was immediately uh, arrested, seized by the Archduke's security forces. To this day, you can still see the Archduke's car at a museum in Vienna, as well as the coat, the, the uh, sky blue military coat that he was wearing the day he was shot, and it still has a huge red blood stain on the front. In addition to this, the exact spot where Gavrilo Princip was standing has been immortalized. The Serbs put a plaque in the sidewalk or in the street with the exact two footprints where his feet were so that any tourist, any visitor can walk up and literally stand in the exact spot where Gavrilo Princip was when he shot the Archduke, where he fired the shots that really sparked the greatest conflict the world had ever seen up until that point. What follows next is often called by historians the July Crisis. This was just a period in the summer of 1914 where the quiet, 
kind of prosperity of the past several years in England called the Edwardian period, in France called La Belle Époque, like the pretty time or the good time. The month after the assassination of the Archduke is where all of this low simmering tension between these European powers really heats up to a boil. This is the time where, I don't know, you could use any number of cliches, the house of cards collapses or the pile of swords falls apart or the kingdom crumbles or anything like that. That critical month July 1914 is where everything, everything falls apart. So in your mind, I, I want you to kind of classify this time as beginning with June 28th, the day the Archduke was shot, and it comes to a close on the 6th of August 1914, when Austria-Hungary declared war on Russia, and now everybody was pulled in. So that critical... I don't know what it is, you know, five, five, six weeks is really where everything falls apart and the First World War really, really begins. It was an intense time where all of the governments and the military and civilian leadership of the great European powers were scrambling kind of what are we going to do and the problem was a lot of the communica uh, communication channels were actually closed uh, it, it wasn't so open that you could just openly communicate with your rivals there was this this atmosphere of fear and paranoia and this constant feeling of if we don't do this they will so i just want to give a brief timeline of the july crisis we know on June 28th, the Archduke was shot. We know that. A few days later, on the 5th and 6th of July, the Austro-Hungarians sent an envoy to Berlin, uh, their ally, their partner, to kind of gauge, hey, uh, what are you guys going to do about this? Uh, they assassinated the heir to our throne. The Kaiser of Germany and the civilian leader of Germany, the Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg, they... They, they came right out and said, yes, we encourage you, uh, punish them, do what you want to do. Historians call this the blank check, you know, the, the blank check. This idea that Germany pledged unconditional support to the Austro-Hungarians in whatever they want to do. And a lot of historians have speculated that the really kind of aggressive actions that followed uh, that were perpetrated by the Austro-Hungarian Empire were as a result of this blank check issued by Germany. Uh, they were emboldened by, hey, you know, we got, we got a blank check from one of the most powerful countries in the world. Moving right along, on the 7th of July, the Austro-Hungarian uh, leadership, they decide to issue an ultimatum to Serbia. So do this, this, and this, and if you don't, we're going to go to war. They stewed on this for a little while. Uh, on the 20th to the 23rd of July, things are really heating up. The French are concerned. The British in, in London are, are kind of pondering what they're going to do. The French uh, mounted a state visit to Russia to kind of reassess the status of their military alliance because everybody was getting really nervous. The reason why Russia is involved 
is because they were the most powerful uh, Slavic country in Europe and the Russian people, but especially the Tsar, they kind of saw it as their sacred duty to defend the Slavs in the Balkan area. Nationalism was a very powerful ideology in Europe at this time, where everybody, it was good to be uh, not just patriotic, because you can be patriotic and love your country. My country is great. Nationalism is when you really kick it up. It, it's like patriotism on steroids, where it's not just my country is great, it's my country is great and it's better than yours. And I will do whatever it takes to stop you from threatening my country in any way. But anyway, this French state visit to Russia uh, went pretty well, and they kind of reconfirmed their alliance that had been in place for many years. One of the most powerful and influential figures in the emergence of modern Germany was this guy called Otto von Bismarck, and he was really a masterful, masterful politician. He had told the Kaiser, whatever you do, keep Russia on your side. Don't don't alienate Russia. And the Kaiser was not as skilled at diplomacy and international relations as Bismarck, and he alienated them. So, you know, in, in the late 19th century, uh, Russia moved away from partnering with Germany and into the arms of the French. And that was exactly what Bismarck had told the Kaiser not to do. Uh, before we get back to the timeline, just one more thing I want to say about Bismarck. There was an official um, before Bismarck was relieved of his office who asked him, hey, if this general European conflict ever happens, how do you think it's going to happen? Where do you think it's going to start? And Bismarck is famously quoted as saying, well, if it does, you know, quote, it'll probably be because of some damned fool thing in the Balkans, end quote. And now we can see just how right he really was. It just occurred to me when I was recording that there may be some people out there that don't know what the word Slav means. The Slavs are one of the most populous uh, ethnic groups in Europe. Uh, they have a shared cultural history and they speak very similar languages, i.e. the Slavic languages. The Slavic peoples of Europe include Russians, Poles, Belarusians, Ukrainians, Serbs, Croats, uh, people like that. A comparable kind of ethnic social identity, uh, a group of peoples that lives next to them would be, uh, for example, the Germanic peoples. The peoples of Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, stuff like that. This kind of ethnic identity was very closely tied to the idea of nationalism in the early 20th century. So, for example, this crisis that we're seeing here, you see the Serbs, who are Slavs, they're part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They want independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So a Serbian terrorist group assassinates the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was a dual monarchy. It, they, they had this imperial system where the reason why they're called Austria-Hungary, it was the union of those two kingdoms. But they were ethnically different. The Austrians are a Germanic people and the Hungarians are kind of unique 
in Eastern Europe because their people are called Magyar. Their, their language is also called Magyar. They're kind of ethnically distinct. They're not a Germanic people like the Austrians, but they're also not a Slavic people like the Russians or the Serbs. But anyway, what you need to know is that, uh, yeah, you had this, this Slavic uh, nation in the Balkans, the Serbs, agitating for freedom against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the reason why Russia is important is because they see it as their duty to stand up for the Serbs. And the Serbs weren't the only one. The Austro-Hungarian Empire at this time period had a multitude of peoples and little nations and languages within it. In the Austro-Hungarian Empire, again, pull up a, a map of Europe in 1914. It, it'll help a lot, especially if you have a map of modern Europe alongside it to kind of compare how much the borders have changed. But the Austro-Hungarian Empire at this time was not just Austrians and Hungarians. You had uh, Germans, you had Czechs, you had Slovaks, Italians, Serbs, Croats, Bosnians, all sorts of people all living under this Austrian-Hungarian imperial throne. And uh, the Serbs weren't the only one agitating for freedom. It's just they were one of the most intense about it. But let's get back to the timeline of the July crisis. So I mentioned that Austria-Hungary had issued uh, an ultimatum to Serbia. On the 25th of July, Serbia replied to the ultimatum. And surprisingly, to, you know, to the amazement of everybody uh, who kind of saw this, they met almost all of the demands. Uh, but it just wasn't good enough for the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, again, would they have been so bold without the, quote, blank check from the Germans? We don't know. But on this day, Austria-Hungary broke off diplomatic relations with Serbia. The next day, on the 26th of July, Britain proposed a uh, mediation conference to try to cool things down a little bit. But this was ignored by the uh, governments of the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So when a lot of historians talk about World War I, sometimes they, they, they relate the narrative in such a way that it was inevitable. It was a doomsday machine. It was this huge clock. And once you flip the switch, it could not be stopped. Um, that is you know, true to some degree. There, there was some degree of fatalism and kind of inevitability amongst the the leadership of a lot of these countries but there were people that did try to stop things there were people that tried to slow things down hey let's talk about this and this is one of the this is a perfect example of that britain proposed a mediation conference on the 26th of july and it was promptly ignored you know by by the kaiser and the austro-hungarian emperor on this same day you have the beginning of what's called partial mobilization in russia so russia the Tsar was under immense pressure by a lot of his officials saying, hey, we don't think this thing's going to turn out turn out well for us. It, it, you know, we have to mobilize immediately, especially because our country is so large and we have so many people and we don't have the strongest 
transport network. We don't have the strongest logistical network to support the mobilization of the huge numbers of Russian people. So we have to start it now. So the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, was under immense pressure to do this. And so on the 26th of July, he ordered partial mobilization of four Russian districts uh, in the West. Two days later, on the 28th of July, this was the first official declaration of war. Uh, the month of July is coming to a close. On the 28th of July, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. So, at this point though, it's still not the First World War. At this point, it's a regional conflict. It is a uh, empire in Central Europe that is trying to pacify, uh, trying to reassert control over a renegade people, a renegade province. Just the next day, on the 29th and 30th of July, the civilian leader of Germany, Bethmann Holweg, the guy I mentioned a little earlier, uh, he did try to restrain Austria-Hungary a little bit for the first time during the crisis. So, you know, even on the German side, uh, what, what's notable, though, is that he is a civilian leader. The Kaiser and the German military were still very much, yeah, let's go in there, let's not mess around, kind of, we're not going to be pushed around by anybody. But this guy, Bethmann Holweg, he did try to some degree. On the 30th of July, Tsar Nicholas II authorized the general mobilization of the Russian armed forces effective the next day. The traditional narrative of the First World War uh, in past decades, often written by uh, British or American writers, they often put a lot of the blame on Germany. So Germany was aggressive, they gave Austria-Hungary the blank check, things of that nature. There are some newer, more modern historians that they look at this event, the 30th of July with the general mobilization in Russia, as this is actually the event that started to transform this regional conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia into, uh-oh, this is turning into a world war. Uh, because the Tsar and his officials must have known what this was going to do. From their point of view, um, I guess you could say there were some among them that were convinced that, well, the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans, uh, they're going to start doing it anyway, so we have to go. And like I mentioned before, their land was so vast, their peoples, they had so much people, and they had so much supplies to move around that they knew that it would actually take them longer. So maybe that's one of the reasons why they did it first. Um, nonetheless, on the 1st of August, the next day, Germany declared war on Russia. And things are really heating up now. On the same day, France and Germany begin general mobilization. So at this point, you might you might say, well, where did France come from? Like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, France was allied with Russia. So for Germany to declare war on Russia, France as Russia's ally was automatically pulled in. And the Germans didn't care. They knew, they knew that this was going to happen. They knew of the alliance system. They knew of this alliance between the French and the Russians, but they had a plan, a plan that I'm going to outline in a future episode, but they had a plan for fighting Russia, knowing that France was gonna come in and then fighting France. On the 2nd of August, German troops 
uh, invaded this this tiny little European country called uh, Luxembourg as part of this attack plan that I will uh, detail later. They issued an ultimatum to Belgium. So why was Belgium important? The reason why is because this attack plan, um, the Franco-German border at this time was one of the most heavily fortified in the world. So they didn't want to try to pierce through that border. They, they thought it would be easier, this is the Germans I'm talking about, to smash through Belgium to get around the French defenses and make their way into France. And when I say smash into Belgium, they were hoping that it wouldn't come to that. That's why they issued this ultimatum. They thought that uh, the Germans or the Belgians would just stand aside and let them through, which in hindsight, I don't know if it was entirely realistic. Uh, besides, the German military leaders, a lot of them looked at the tiny Belgian army as uh, chocolate soldaten, like chocolate soldiers. Uh, so, it, you know, a little bit of heat and they'll melt. In any case, the very same day that they issued this ultimatum to Belgium, Brit the British cabinet uh, approved the protection of the French coast and of uh, Belgian neutrality. This allowed the uh, French to move a lot of their ships to the Mediterranean, just in case. But on the 3rd of August, so here we are, you know, three days into August, German troops invaded Belgium and they declared war on France. Um, on this very same day, Italy uh, declared to the world that they're going to stay neutral. So where does Italy come in? Italy had actually been allied to Germany and Austria-Hungary. They were part of the central powers. So in the First World War, there were, there were two sides, um, the allies and the central powers. So the central powers were the ones in the center of Europe, uh, which is Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. And the allies were the UK, France, and Russia until the states got involved. But anyway, Italy was actually allied to these central powers, but they decided to stay neutral and they were allowed to do this while still technically honoring their alliance because there was a clause in their alliance contract that their obligation to go to war was only for wars of a defensive nature. So they argued to the governments of the German Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire that, hey, Germany, because you invaded Belgium, you know, you didn't wait for the, the French to attack you or the Russians to attack you. We have no obligation to actually come in to the war on your side. So very interesting turn of events. On the 4th of August, Britain declares war on Germany after Germany had violated Belgian neutrality. And, and that's a huge part of why the war happened the way it did on the Western Front. So in World War I, the two main fronts were the Western Front and the Eastern Front. The Western Front was the area of Belgium and Northern France. Belgium had been guaranteed its neutrality for many, many, many decades. The Germans gambled that the British would not enter the war just to stick up for Belgium, uh, but the British did. Obviously, this wasn't the only reason. The British were also very concerned about if Germany takes Belgium, if Germany beats France, what is that going to mean for the power balance on the continent? So it's kind of like there was this mentality of fight Germany now or fight Germany later. But anyway. Here we're coming to the close of the July crisis with the final declaration of war of a major power on another major power. On the 6th of August, 
Austria-Hungary declares war on Russia. So at this point, the Archduke was shot on the 28th of June. Here we are on the 6th of August, and who's involved? Well, in the West, Britain's involved. They're going to war. France is going to war. Uh, Belgium is also going to war. So they're all part of the Allies. Okay, that's the, the other side in World War One. They're fighting Germany on the Western Front. In the East, you have the massive Russian Empire fighting the German Empire in Eastern Europe in a lot of areas that are now called Poland. They're also fighting the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Another member of the Central Powers has decided that they're going to stay neutral. That's Italy. They were one of the seven great powers that I mentioned earlier. So who is missing still is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire actually doesn't get involved until November, uh, which is long after the July crisis. And there are other powers that will get involved later. But this is kind of the summer of 1914, the great powers of Europe going to war, uh, countries that will get involved later, I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but countries that will get involved later are the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, and critically the United States. Um, and I also want to mention that when I say Britain, that includes the empire. So Britain declaring war on Germany, it also means Canada's going to war, Australia's going to war, New Zealand's going to war, South Africa's going to war, British India's going to war. Uh, when I say France, it also includes their vast territories you know, in Africa. So you have French troops uh, from Senegal, for example, going to war. Like it, it, it's these uh, nations had these vast global empires and they would pull in uh, all of the, you know, the quote colonials, which is uh, often what they called them. So yeah. What you need to know at this point is the end of the July crisis concludes with a general European conflict, which is something everybody had been dreading for a hundred years since the time of Napoleon. Well, that's going to do it for us today in our introductory episode in our series about the First World War. I wanted to give a general introduction and look at the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and give kind of a brief overview of the July crisis. So uh, I hope you learned something. <laughs> Hopefully you did. And this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast and interesting. I was Nick, your host, and thank you for listening.